Revelation chapter 12. As we continue our walk through the book of Revelation. The title of today's message is Israel's Deliverance. We live in a time where Christendom has written off the nation of Israel, not realizing that all of the prophecies made are born out of Israel and for Israel. In this chapter, this is in this section of this parenthetical time of, of or framework between Revelation 9 and Revelation 16, meaning that in chapters 11 through 15, we are given information that is taking place from the midpoint of the tribulation to the return of Jesus Christ. So we are reading things that are happening through the time of the judgments we have already read about. We will see, for example, in Revelation 12, about a 6,000 year time frame in this one chapter. We will see from the day one of creation to the return of Jesus Christ, we will see the, the, the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. It will be a hard time for the Jews, but it concludes with the coming of the kingdom. And it concludes with every prophecy in the Old Testament being fulfilled as Christ returns to earth. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word and, and we seek to better understand this corporate chosen election of a nation, um, a nation that was often disobedient, a nation that was often wandering and worshiping other gods, but it is your nation. It is, as the Old Testament says, the apple of your eye, the, the birth of our Savior that we are thinking about in these days comes through the nation of Israel, and we're going to see the history of that today. Help us to more better understand our heritage in Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Revelation chapter 12, we are shown things um, in these parenthetical chapters of 11 through 15. We're focusing on the midpoint of the tribulation on. Um, I will do more reading than commentary today. There's so much information from the Old Testament that fits into chapter 12 that I want to talk less about it and read more of it, so we're going to look at some of those things. As you look, beginning in verse 1, John says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So we will see clearly, it will be defined to us as we move further into this chapter, um, but this woman, which Mary descends from, um, the woman here isn't Mary. The woman here is the nation of Israel. Um, we were talking about wisdom a couple of Wednesdays ago. An entity is reaffirmed in the feminine, and this picture here is a familiar picture to Jews. So we think of as we go back to this 17-year-old boy in the territory of Dothan in the Bible is sharing with his brothers visions that are coming to him from heaven. 
the boy's name is Joseph, and you read in your notes there in Genesis 37 and verse 9, Joseph has a second dream. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So this, as we read Revelation 12, 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So Joseph sees a vision that is two things. It is the nation that will be born, that would be Israel, that will be chosen, that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Jacob's son is being taken captive to Egypt so that he would become prime minister of Egypt, so that his family would move there and the nation of Israel would actually be born in Egypt. So Joseph is seeing a vision that prophesies that as he's a 17-year-old boy telling his older brothers that in this vision and in this context in which Israel will be born as a nation, there are a nation of 70 people at this time. You say, that's not a nation. You're right, it's not. So there are 70 people, and a boy among those 70 people is saying that what is, how the nation will be formed is when we see in Revelation 12, 1, 12 stars, Joseph being the 12th, we see in Genesis 37, 11 of those stars are going to bow down to me. And that will be where they will be born as a nation. So Joseph is sent there as a prisoner, spends time in prison, is being groomed, grown, and persevered to be prime minister of Egypt. And when he becomes prime minister of Egypt, the famine that he prophesied forces from Canaan the other 69 members of his extended family to come to Goshen where Israel would be born as a nation. And the second thing that it is anticipating is obviously Revelation 12, where we are given the description of this woman, this nation of Israel, and it will become clearer as we go throughout the chapter. So 4,210 years earlier, Joseph is prophesying this from the beginning to the all the way to the return of Christ, we read in verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman that we just described who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child at the moment that he was born. So John is seeing visions that capture all of history, all of from the beginning of time until this moment. He sees a vision of the birth of Israel as we go back in time, and we go back farther in time, and he sees the, the history of Satan. So Lucifer was was brought into being 4,115 years before Christ as Lucifer, as this glorious, musical, talented, gifted angel who says, I want to be like God. I want you to think of me 
of God. And so in um, Luke chapter 10, um, I don't know if I put that in your notes or not, but in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And he's referring back to um, what is in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where Lucifer says, I want to be like God. He is cast down for the first time. In this chapter, we will see him being cast down for the final time. But when he is cast down in the first day of creation and he is thrown to the earth, we learn here from Revelation 12 that when he did that, he took a third of all the angels in heaven with him. So there was evidently a, a turning point in heaven immediately when the angels were created. And Satan says, I want to be like God. And the angels are looking around saying, man, this is the coolest angel up here. Let's go with him. And that formed a permanent divide. Angels aren't like human beings with free will. So that a third of all the angels that God created became demons. And Lucifer became Satan. And he will be described as, the, as this evil influence in this chapter of the whole world. Many of those angels were locked into the abyss that we've already seen. They were turned loose. And one of the woes and one of the trumpet judgments that these demons this, that were cast down, many of them are sealed up until the tribulation has five months left and they are turned loose on earth, a very dark moment. So John is taking within that time frame of those demons being um, turned loose, he's giving us their history, that Lucifer fell like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. In Luke chapter 8, I believe, when he casts out the legion of demons, they said, please don't throw us into the abyss. They know that the worst of the demons are cast into that place. So we see this history, um, verses 3 and 4 again, then another sign in heaven appeared, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and its seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And then he fast forwards all the way to Bethlehem. The dragon stood in front of the woman, who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 4, actually. One of the subtleties of the songs that we just sang is that they were from a, a time gone by when those songs were written. And what you see within those songs, very subtly, is a baby, a king, a ruler. So whenever you look at prophecies that point to the birth and the manger, they're woven into prophecies about a king and a ruler who will rule with a scepter and will destroy the nations that go against him. So we're familiar from childhood with Micah 5 too. Well, the Bible says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and that's true. Micah is in the context of leading up to the fall of Judah. He is from Judah, and they're going to be sent to Babylon. They're going to be in captivity. The temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be leveled. And in that context, 
he tells us about the one who will rule. So we're going to take it up in Micah chapter 4 and verse 11 to understand the context of the prophecy of the birth in Bethlehem. But now many nations are gathered against you. So this is pointing to two things, but it's primarily pointing to Armageddon. So Micah is prophesying the valley of Jehoshaphat and the destruction that Jesus will bring at Armageddon. Verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek, and this verse here weaves into the prophecies of Armageddon, the fall of Jerusalem, and, and when Zedekiah has his eyes taken out. So this is the soon-to-come destruction of Jerusalem. But, verse 2 says, even though they're going to strike Judah, even though you're going to go into captivity, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Remember, we just read in chapter 12 that this enormous red dragon is um, cast down, and then, and then we see him standing there in Revelation 12, waiting for this child to be born, for she is about to give birth. And we see that in verse 3 here. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she, Israel, who is in labor, bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. We will see this in Ezekiel later on. This is the regathering of the nations promised way back in Genesis. Verse 4, He will stand and shepherd his flock in, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, a prophecy there of the millennium. So Micah is prophesying about Armageddon, about the return of Christ, and in the middle of that, he says that Judah is going to be taken down, chapter 5 and verse 1, but, verse 2, in you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, a ruler will rise, and he's going to shepherd the people, and by the end of verse 4, his rule will extend across the planet, talking about the millennium, the hope of Israel, um, the renewal of all things for Israel. Turn to Matthew chapter 2 as we see the human being that he is 
Satan is using in chapter 12 that is standing there waiting for the baby to be born so that he might kill him. The human being is Herod. So we were, we made a stop in Daniel chapter 11 last week and in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41, Daniel talks about the Antichrist sweeping down from Europe into the beautiful land and on the beautiful mountain. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to move his headquarters from Europe to Jerusalem. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to set up in a temple an image of himself saying, I am God. And while this sweeping is being described in Daniel in verse 41 of chapter 11, it says that he won't destroy places like Moab and Edom. The people that were the most hateful towards the Jews will not be destroyed by the events of the tribulation. They will be destroyed personally by Jesus Christ. So Babylon and Moab and Edom, for example, Edom is the brother of Jacob, the older brother of Jacob. His name was Esau. And Herod is actually, hundreds of years later, a descendant of Esau. And he is there being led by Satan as king of the Jews. He sees himself as the king of the Jews and he is in Jerusalem. And we come into Matthew chapter 2 and we see the spiritual tension that is going on here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. We had a good discussion this morning. Um, this is one of the parts of the movie that I don't agree with, and I think answers are right here as to what is happening. But we're describing this time that Jesus is born. Um, it is likely that for a while he is hearing whispers about five and a half to six miles south and east of Jerusalem, where Herod is, is Bethlehem. And there was a commotion um, of something happening in a manger and shepherds telling people about it. And now we're probably about a year and a half to two years later, these magi have been traveling from Persia and they've been following a star that rose out of Jacob, as it is described. I, I believe personally this is the Shekinah glory of Christ rather than a star or a planet or something in the sky. And I believe it leads them from the moment of the birth of Christ to Jerusalem, to Herod, to tell Herod and the Pharisees the king is born. And they say, where is he? And they say, well, the Pharisees say in Micah 5.2, it says he would be born in Bethlehem. They leave, they step outside, and the star reappears. And it takes them specifically to a manger. And when they get there, it's not, isn't he an adorable baby? Don't they make a cute family? It's, he's the king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
these magi who are kingmakers from Persia are acknowledging that he's the king of all kings. And they bow to him. We read on verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star appeared, meaning that the star appeared at the moment Jesus came out of Mary. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. I too may go and worship him. He is going there. He is what we're reading in Revelation 12, waiting for this child so he can kill him. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold pointing to his kingship, frankincense, uh, uh, a fragrance of a king, and myrrh, what they would put on his body when they put him in the tomb. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, just like Abraham and even Muslims today see Christ in visions, they are told not by angel like Gabriel coming directly to him like he does the Israelites, but God shows him in a dream like he did Nebuchadnezzar. And in the dream it said, do not go back to Herod. These people are not casual bypassers. These are worshipers of Yahweh. These are people acknowledging that this baby is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when the dream warns them, they go home by another route. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Revelation 12, 3 and 4. So he got up, took the child with and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he had stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, fully filled, in other words, which is common, kind of like the prophecy we looked at with Joseph, the Lord, so, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son, so when Joshua brought them into the promised land, when Moses led them out of Egypt, Hosea later writes, out of Egypt I've called my son, my son Israel. And now it says that the prophecy is completely fulfilled 
because Jesus himself, God's own son, goes to Egypt, and when Herod dies, he calls his son out of Egypt to come home, and he goes home to Nazareth. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, which the gold would have come in very handy then because they were a very impoverished couple, as we learn in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and the gold would have helped them travel a long ways to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so fulfilled the, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or under. So we know when they told him they had seen the star, it would have been less than two years. But Jesus has been living in Jerusalem now for close to two years. So he says, kill them all, just like they did with the babies in Egypt, just like, unfortunately, we do with many babies in our country. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's interesting that I am convinced that Joseph is the firstborn son of Jacob in God's eyes. He is called the firstborn son when Reuben defiles his father bed, father's bed and Joseph is way down at the bottom near Benjamin. Um, but they bow down to him when they are formed as a nation. There are so many things about Joseph in the Bible. The woman at the well meets at Joseph's well with Jesus. But here we see Rachel weeping for her children. They're not her children. They're Leah's children. Because Judah is her son. But God says that Rachel is the one weeping. And I believe Rachel is the chosen wife of Jacob. And I think that's why we see that written in Jeremiah. Let's go back to Revelation 12. In verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The Magi got that. They understood that. This wasn't just an heir to a throne. This is, was a person who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of her for 1260 days. So all of these parenthetical passages point to the beginning of the great tribulation, the middle of the tribulation to the end. And we see here this vast history put into this concise chapter in the Bible that, that Satan is cast down and, and he is waiting, he's anticipating, he knows the scriptures, he knows the star, he knows the the town where he would be born in, and, and he is trying to kill this baby, and, and the Gabriel is 
is directing Joseph deliberately, leave Bethlehem, go to Egypt, come back from Egypt, his brother's on the throne, go to Nazareth. So wherever in the story God needs to step in, he steps in to keep his son from being caught by those who would kill him. Then we see that she gives birth to a son. He will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And then he is caught up to God. We're taken right to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the throne that he is sitting on in Isaiah chapter 6, he is back on his throne. Isaiah 53, where it describes the crucifixion of Christ, it ends with him putting Christ on the highest place in heaven, giving him all authority and all rule. And we see in the Psalms there in your notes, when Christ is on the throne, Matthew and Mark record him saying in Aramaic, um, which is what the Magi would have spoke, which, which is, we won't get into all of that, um, but he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my understanding in doing research is what he did was he quoted Psalms 22 from the cross. And it begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's actually a coronation psalm that takes Christ from his death to his throne. So you see there in your notes, near the end of the psalm, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That's the same chapter that he's quoting from the cross, that he is going to be lifted up to his throne, and he is going to rule over all the nations. So Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 72 are all talking about this. His father says to him in Psalm 2, Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry for his wrath can flare up in a moment. That's David writing about the coronation of Christ. And he is Melchizedek in Psalm 110, and it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. You are my son, today I have become your father. All of these are pointing to what we're reading about in a very concise passage in Revelation chapter 12. We pick it up in verse six, we read the 1260 days, but we see the woman, and this is how we know it's not Mary, as Catholicism teaches, that the first verses that this is all about Mary, it's about Israel. Mary is in this story, and she's from Israel, but we see the woman, verse 6, fled into the wilderness to, to, to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. So this 70th seven, this seven year period, everything critical begins at the midpoint of the tribulation. Satan is cast down to heaven. He's defeated by Michael. The Jews are told to get out. In fact, let's turn to Matthew 24. She is being told throughout the Gospels that 
when the midpoint happens, when there's 1260 days left, Daniel says, Daniel 9.27, at the exact midpoint of the tribulation, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple, in the holy place, proclaiming himself to be God. Jesus says, what we're going to read here is, when you see that, get out of Jerusalem. Every Jew will be killed. We'll, re we'll read that later in Revelation 12. So at the rapture, Romans 11.25, this cloud that is over the Jews because they rejected Christ and they rejected Christ and they rejected Christ and they rejected Christ, they rejected Christ is lifted. So for the first time, they can read Matthew, which is written about kings, kingdoms, and Israel. And they can understand who Jesus is. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, he's telling the Jews, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes the desolation, that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Daniel 9.27, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back for their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So Jesus says, from the midpoint of the tribulation, every disaster, every tragedy, every atrocity, the However many millions that Stalin killed and, and Hitler killed and Nebuchadnezzar killed, all of those things, nothing will compare to this time. And he says, when you see in the temple this abomination, this image of the Antichrist, and he's proclaiming to be God, get out. If your coat's on the floor, leave it. Run. Get out of here, because it will be the worst time in the history of Israel. Jerusalem will be occupied by Satan for 1260 days. And he is telling the Jews, you have to get out, and we will see why. Zacharias says that two-thirds of them will be killed on their journey to the wilderness. But we will read later today that the rest of them, on wings of eagles, will be lifted up taken to the wilderness where they will be protected by Michael. Turn to Jeremiah. I'm going to try to limit commentary and just let you see what the Jews will understand in the tribulation. Jeremiah 30 is about the great tribulation which is the second half, the 1260 days that we're reading about in Revelation 12. And we pick it up in verse 7, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Remember we just read in Matthew, Jesus says this will be the worst time ever and worse than it will ever be after it. So Jeremiah is writing the same thing. 
how awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. They're going to go to the wilderness, and Michael, who is stronger than Satan, will be at the wilderness with them, and Satan cannot touch them. It will be a difficult journey. Most of them will not survive. They'll be in heaven because they're going there out of obedience to Christ, meaning that these are Jews who have repented. Verse, verse 8, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. This is the hope of Israel. The hope of the church is the rapture. The hope of Israel is the millennium, which comes when Christ comes to earth. Verse 9, Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. We won't get into it, but in Ezekiel 34 through 48, we see David brought back to life the way Moses and Elijah were in Revelation 11 during the millennium. Verse 10, So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make them, him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord, though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you. I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. So this is written right before they go into captivity in Babylon. They're going to be punished, but I will never destroy you, he says. Turn to chapter 31 in Jeremiah. The covenant by which you and I are born again is a covenant made with Israel in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And after he makes that covenant with Israel... He says this about Israel, verse 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below searched out will I reject the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. When he chose Israel, when Joseph brought them into Egypt and they were born as a nation, when he promised Abraham it was always going to be Israel. It will always be Israel. The 12 tribes will be written on the new city that comes down from heaven to earth and he is promising them deliverance here. And the deliverance will be the return of Christ. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, just a couple, chap or a couple books ahead. So much in Ezekiel about this. I'm going to just try to give you some of it. But in Ezekiel 20, he is defining the judgment. We will go before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. He is talking about the judgment of Israel here. 
Um, and these will be Jews um, who are separated, Matthew 25, at the end of the tribulation. So we pick it up in chapter 20 and verse 33. You say we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone, but what have you, but but you have what you have in mind will never happen. As surely, verse 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and without poured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where they, you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the wilderness. We've read this three times now. We read it in Jeremiah. We read it in Revelation. We read it in Matthew. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations and there, face to face, I will execute judgment upon you as I judged your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod, this is like the shepherd picture of Christ, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me, although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're just touching some of these verses, verse 24 of Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So if we go back um, 2,000 years before Christ in Genesis 15, he gives him the dimensions and the description of the land that will be Israel. He gives them the authority and the, and the power and the backing to go in and conquer it all. And they conquer most of it, and they're just they're tired of conquering. So when Genesis, in Genesis 15, when Christ gives Abraham the territory that is Israel, it will not be realized until Christ returns. The boundaries of Israel described in Genesis 15 will be Israel. So Palestine and um, a lot of these, Moab and Ammon and Edom, those are the immediate around the borders of Israel and they're infested into Israel today. So there's no Palestine in the Bible. 
the, the territory given to Abraham is being fought over by everyone, but when Christ comes, it will all be theirs. Turn to the next chapter, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 37 is God promising that he will bring every portion from every from the United States of America, from Russia, from wherever they are, understand that when Solomon worshipped idols, he was the last king to sit on all of Israel's throne. And he is the one that Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 refers to in the physical while it points to Christ. So the kingdom split in two. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which is what Israel is today, made up Judah, where Christ would come through. The ten tribes, which are called Ephraim, because it is Joseph's son, given the promise from God through Jacob to Ephraim, those ten tribes have never been back to Israel. 722 years before Christ, they were exiled. They're still exiled. So 2,000 years after Christ, they're still scattered. They're still in Afghanistan and all of these stands that are, you know, Muslim-ruled today. There are a lot of Jews there. Ethiopia and places in Africa, there are a lot of Jews there. So in Ezekiel 37, he gives Ezekiel a unique vision of like a dead graveyard coming back together, bone by bone, flesh coming back on the bones, and it's a picture of Israel coming back together. Part of that was fulfilled in 1948 when Israel became a nation, but it won't be fully fulfilled until Christ comes. So the second half of the chapter is about Judah, who has been separated because of Solomon from the ten northern tribes, they will come together and form one tribe, or one people, one nation. But in the first half, we're going to see this vision that he sees. Verse 1, Ezekiel 37, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, and this is what Abraham said in Genesis 15 too. He says, here, Adonai Yahweh, in other words, Lord, Master, and Savior. You alone know, verse 4. He said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain and they, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and I bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken when I have done it, declares the Lord. And the second half of the chapter is that all 12 tribes will be gathered in this territory for the first time since the promise of Genesis 15. So Israel has been waiting 4,000 years so far for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And Jesus says, as we read in chapter 20, I'm going to come at the end of the tribulation. You're going to pass under my rod. And those of you who have chosen me over the Antichrist, I am going to bring you in and I will be your shepherd and you will have peace forever. And these are the, the hope of Israel as we see it. Turn um, to Daniel chapter 12. We will remember this as we go back to Revelation and read this in a short amount of time, everything that we're looking at at the Old Testament and much more. In Daniel chapter 12, this is what the time of Jacob's trouble, it is the great and dreadful day of the Lord in Joel and in um, Malachi chapter 4, the second half of the tribulation, and all of Daniel 12 is about the second half of the tribulation. In fact, it goes 75 days into the millennium at the return. But we see this authoritative, the most powerful angel that God ever created. His name was Michael. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. So we take that statement with what is being told to us in multiple other places, they're going to the wilderness, they're going to the wilderness, they're going to the wilderness where they will be protected for 1260 days. So it will be really hard to get there. I don't know specifically where they're going in the wilderness, but I do know that once they get there, Michael will be there and Satan cannot touch them. These Jews will be weeping and mourning for Christ, the one they have ignored until this time, and Daniel tells us Michael is their protector. There will be a time, Daniel says, of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations till then. That's the verse that Jesus quoted when we read Matthew chapter 24. But at that time, your people, and this is an important part of the verse, Paul says in Romans 11, he says that at that time all Israel will be saved. 
Does that mean they're saved because they're Jews? No, Daniel defines it here. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Everyone who has made Christ their Lord in the nation of Israel will be delivered when Christ returns. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12 when we see that moment almost at the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 12, we see the return of Christ to these Jews gathered in the wilderness where they will all be saved who have had their name written in the book of life, which only comes by making Christ their Lord. In Zechariah 12 and verse 8, on that day, not always, but whenever you see those three words and you're reading prophesy, it's talking about the return of Christ. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them the way he did when he brought them out of Egypt. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, Revelation 1, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Imagine finding out that God's son died for you and you ignored him for thousands of years. And here he is. Imagine the, the tears that will drench this wilderness as Zacharias says, like one mourning for their only son like having one child and his life was taken and you're mourning for that child, that's what the tears will be like when Israel, now cloud-lifted, now following scriptures, made it to the wilderness. It looks visually all around them, even though Michael is protecting them, no, nobody's going to survive. And then here he comes in his glory on a white horse and he pours the Holy Spirit on them, and he gives them a heart of flesh and takes their heart of stone away. In Israel, his people are finally, truly his people. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. So bear with me, I'll do some reading here and just listen. So I will only describe to you what I am reading um, I'll read two of the three parables. The first two parables, this is all about the tribulation. This is all about the return of Christ. This is all about when Daniel says at the end of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, everyone whose name is found written in the book. So this is um, the parable of the ten virgins is about Jews. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he says, those whose names are in the book, I will put my spirit in them. And those who don't have oil in the parable are those who want to say, we want to come in too.
but they didn't follow God before he returned. So this parable sounds strange to us because it's written to Jews. At that time, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, Christ being the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. In other words, they had the message, but they didn't have the Spirit of God. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And to a Jew, this is very clearly Holy Spirit reference. Verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Go in, or instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet which Daniel describes at the end of Daniel 12. And the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. We see a similar parable, a familiar one, next, and then we drop down to verse 31 where he judges Gentiles, and he will specifically tell us how Gentiles are judged. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he, he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Remember John 12, 26, that, that we will be where he is and we will serve where he serves and his father will come to us. Um, so it's through Christ. Verse 34 again, Then the king will say, Those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Look at all of these descriptions here, because we won't come back, but verse 35 and verse 36, he is describing that a Gentile who is a believer in the tribulation is helping Jews. In other words, that's a characteristic of every Gentile who truly believes in Christ is understanding what we're looking at here and Satan has come down to get all of the Jews and they're, when, if there's a Jew that is hungry, they're giving them food. If they're thirsty, they're giving them water. If they're in prison, they're going there to see them in prison. They're doing whatever they can because they know that the one who is coming is descended from Israel. 
So verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you, go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers, meaning Jews and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's kind of like Paul, Paul, why are, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you mean, Lord? Who are you, Lord? You're persecuting my followers. So here he's referring to his brothers, the Jews. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's an important verse. That verse tells us that hell wasn't created for human beings, but it's where human beings go that won't follow Christ. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They, will an they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's go back to Revelation 12. So as we begin reading in verse 6, and we continue to read on, all of what we are looking at in the Old Testament and in Matthew and so much more is happening within the context of this chapter, which is really focused on Israel. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. We've seen that in many places in the prophets. Then... And he is, when he says then, he's not saying after this. So this is the third time he said then. He's referring to, here's another thing that's happening. Here's another thing. It's like one of the, those movies you watch where there's like several parts to it, like Saving Private Ryan or something like that, where this is going on here, this is going on there, this is going on here. That's what John is doing. All of this fits into the 1260 days. So verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he, the dragon, was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This is the moment in time when demons and Satan lose access to heaven. So with 1260 days left from Genesis 1-1 until that moment, Satan and demons can go back and forth to heaven with God's permission. In this moment, they are cast out finally. 
So now every demon and Satan is only on earth all the time. So what will happen is they will ultimately be judged by us, 1 Corinthians 6, cast into hell and sealed there forever. Right here they are cast out of heaven forever. So this is parenthetical, so we're seeing the culmination as we go into verse 10 of the tribulation. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And we pause there for a minute and you look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 and it says that once he had gone through, meaning Christ had gone through living his righteous life, he is now able to save forever, make perfect forever those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for them. So when we combine that with this verse in Revelation 12, we have this visual of what's going on in heaven today. God the Father is seated on his throne. Question, why would you let Jim McDowell into heaven? That's a good question. Why would you save him in the first place? That's a good question too. And Satan is saying, look at him as a Christian. Why would you let that into heaven? And Christ says, because he's mine. The reason we are once saved, always saved, Hebrews 7.25, is because he always lives to intercede for us. Satan accuses me before God day and night. Christ represents me before his Father day and night. And that's why I know the hope to which I'm called. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He knows Revelation 12. He knows he's got 1260 days. Daniel 7.25 says that he tries to change the set times. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, Israel, this is why Jesus says, get out of there. When, when you see this point, it will be a time unequaled and will never be equaled again. So he pursued the woman who, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness. It will be supernatural that any of them make it to the wilderness. Satan and all of the demons have zeroed in their focus on kill every Jew. And there will be two wings of a great eagle that will take a third of them all the way to the wilderness. Michael will be there waiting for them. And Satan will have to go after Christians then and not Jews. So verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time 
times and half a time, 1260 days, three and a half year, or a time times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth while swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. I would perceive that as the moment that he realizes Michael is guarding them and he has nothing he can do. So what does he do? Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Obedient Gentiles will become the focus of Satan once he realizes, I can't reach the Jews. So look in your notes there, Romans 4.15. We just read there in verse 17 again. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Paul explains how that is you and me, or Gentiles, Romans 4.16. Therefore, his promise comes by faith, so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, meaning the Jews, but also to those of us who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So when Satan realizes that he cannot get to the Jews, he will go after Gentiles, who we read earlier will overcome him, by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of their witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your nation today. A nation that is clouded in its understanding that their Messiah has already come. And I pray, Lord, that there would be Jews before the tribulation that would respond to the rapture by making Christ their Lord today. And I'm challenged if, if Gentiles are recognized as true believers by helping Jews, um, I am challenged once again to figure out how I can do that. Help us to do that as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.